The scripture reading is from the book of Genesis, chapter 1, verses 26 through 27. It can be found on page 1 in the Black Bibles. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The word of the Lord. Thanks for reading for us this morning, Mallory and David. And again, thanks for being here with us this morning. My my name is John Trapp. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ the King. It's really fun to see, um, seeing some faces who are maybe back from college. Uh, Fun to have y'all back. Hope your finals went well. They're over at least. but really glad to, to just see some of y'all back here. Um, if this is your first time at Christ the King, I want to extend a special welcome to you. It's, uh, this is a place where we, uh, we want you to feel the hospitality of God because we believe that our God is hospitable to all kinds of people. We're going to actually look at that this morning. And um, so wherever you are, as if you're showing up and you're doubting or you're cynical about Christianity or skeptical, uh, or if you're just looking to grow, wherever you are on that spectrum, we're really glad to have you here and hope that uh, our time in God's word and in worship together can be encouraging to you. So let me pray for us and we'll get started. Lord, we ask now that you would help us um, to better understand your word. And as we do so, that you would help us um, not to just do that on an academic Um, as an academic exercise, but that we would actually see more of who you are uh, as we consider your word together now. And that can only happen if you help us by the power of your spirit. So um, I'm asking that you would. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in 2018, in Austin, Texas, there was a woman named Laura Young who went thrift shopping at a local Goodwill. She's going up and down the aisles and she comes across this interesting looking piece. It's a marble bust. And it's, list, it's $35 price tag stuck on it. And you know, it's this kind of weird thing in Austin, shocker. And she just decides to buy it. And they, uh, she takes it and just kind of you know, puts it in the back seat of her car, kind of throws it back there and goes home. And she's kind of looking at it more over the course of the next couple of days. She's like, this is this thing is kind of old looking. I'm gonna get someone to, to check this out. And so she has a friend who's an antiques dealer that she called and her friend came with that and her friend's like, yes, this, is, this does look old. We need to figure out what this is. And so they go and ask more and more experts about it and they came to find out that there, this was a 2,000 year old marble bust that was sitting in a Goodwill in Austin, Texas. It was a 2,000 year old marble bust that had once sat in the home of someone named Pompey the Great, which... I had to Wikipedia after I saw that. And apparently he was this at one point political friend, but then political enemy of a guy you might know named Julius Caesar. And this piece had been lost since World War II. It had gone missing. And no one knew where it was. It turned up in an Austin, Texas Goodwill. Uh, And the storyteller in me wants to say like she became a millionaire, but she had to give it back because it was stolen art. So bummer for her. But... What, uh, what I want you to consider is how she treated that image, that marble image differently once she found out what it was. 
How do you think she, she put it in her car, maybe as she was driving home from like the fifth expert that they had seen who had told them this is a bust from the home of Pompeii the Great? Probably a little bit differently from when she like just tossed it in the back seat of her car. Actually, the picture, in the picture of the back seat of her car, it's like sitting in her child seat, like her baby's like child seat. Probably started shipping it a little bit differently from then on. And I, I, I bring up this story because I actually, I actually think it frames for us as we consider what it means for us to bear the image of God. I want you to think about that as we consider what it means to bear the image of God. So three things for you this morning, shocker, three-point sermon, here we go. First point, the value of humanity. Second, mistaking the value. And then third, confirming the value. The value of humanity, mistaking the value, confirming the value. Let's go. So I know I've said this like pretty much every time we've um, opened our Bibles to Genesis this series, but I'm going to say it again. It's really important to remember the context in which this book is received. So the first readers or the first hearers, uh, better said, of this word would have been Israel in the ancient Near East as they are leaving Egypt and they're wandering in the desert and they've just lived as slaves for around 400 years in Egypt. And in this story, the way that Eden is depicted, it's depicted, a lot of commentators have, have said it's depicted as a temple. And there's all of this temple language that ancient Near Eastern folks would have picked up on as the creation story and specifically the creation of Egypt, of, of Eden is described. In fact, later the tabernacle and the temple that, um, that Israel would build would resemble Eden. And so there's all of this temple language because the temple is a place where the divine and mankind meet and commune with one another. And that's what's happening in Eden. But in, for any temple construction project that would have happened in the ancient Near East, the, the construction project wouldn't be finished until you had placed the image of whatever God of that temple in its resting place in the temple. But the audacious claim of Genesis 1 is that this image of God is not made of wood. It's not carved from stone, but that it's actually made of flesh and blood and that it is brought in to this temple of Eden and told to rest there. And this would have been so different, y'all, so different from the contemporary stories of that day in the ancient Near East because all of those other creation stories, I referenced one called the Enuma Elish a couple weeks ago. It's the Babylonian creation story. All the, those creation stories like that one and others like it depict not a mankind that is made in God's image. It depicts mankind that is made in order to be slaves to the gods or to appease the gods or to serve the gods. Mankind is not given any kind of dignity in those stories. In fact, nobody was thought of as godlike except maybe the king in these other ancient cultures. Pharaoh was godlike. King Pharaoh was like God, but certainly not, certainly not Israelites, slaves. But Genesis brings out this whole new idea, which is that all human life is precious. 
verse 27, that all bear God's image, male and female equally bear God's image. And we, we can hear that and in our kind of 21st century, especially like living in the Bible Belt, still kind of, not really, but kind of, we can hear that and say, well, yeah, but we, li- we gotta remember, we live in a country whose founding document, the Declaration of Independence says, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. But without Genesis 1, 26 and 27, these truths are not self-evident. Those truths were not self-evident to those living in Egypt or in Babylon. They were not self-evident to Hinduism with its caste system and untouchables. This is not self-evident. But the Imago Dei, it's what we're talking about, the image of God, Imago Dei is the Latin phrase for image of God. It's an audacious idea that all men and women bear the very image of God. And I want you to think about what this would have been like for say, a young Israelite girl who's just come out of slavery in Egypt to hear these words spoken to her in Genesis one. And let's use our imagination a bit to think about what her life must have been like as an Egyptian house slave. No school, she can't read. Her father is likely away working. It's probably not, maybe not even a very good relationship with her parents because they're gone, they're split. Father making bricks all day. Harsh life, no regular food, hungry, no dentist, no health care, no doctor, no barber, no running water, parasites, scared, if she's ever abused, no one there, no one there to stand up for her. And that girl, in this world, in the misogynist world of the ancient Near East is being told, you're an image bearer of God. That, that idea originates in here, in the world. Nobody else was thinking this way. That originates here. And this language, this Imago Dei language is family language that's being used in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. It's echoed later in Genesis 5, 3. In Genesis 5, 3 talks about Adam's progeny. It says, Adam fathered a son in his own likeness. Is that word likeness, the same word from Genesis 1. In his own likeness, after his image and named him Seth. So while Seth was not Adam, right, different people, Seth shared his likeness, had similar qualities, and Genesis 1 is saying that God has created men and women in the same way to be image bearers in his family. And it's not just the kings that this is true for, but from the highest king to the lowest slave, all bear the image of God. And if, if we don't get this biblical anthropology, we get real off kilter really quick. Anthropology is important. Not just because they have great candles, but actually like the study of what makes us human, okay? Study of what makes us human. 
A biblical anthropology is absolutely vital for relating to God and to one another in ways that help us flourish. But we often, we often mistake the value of humans. So second point, mistaking the value. Um, <clears throat> the results of our bad anthropology can cause us to do one of two things. We can overestimate our association with the divine and actually begin to believe ourselves not as image bearers of God, but as God. And I, that's kind of a separate sermon that you're gonna hear later when we get to Genesis 3, because we're, we're, we're getting there in the story. But what I want us to consider today is what happens when we underestimate our biblical anthropology, when we underestimate what it means to bear the image of God. And first off, you need to know that it's natural for this to happen in an increasingly secular world where there, is le- there are less and less people believing that there is God. So if, if God doesn't exist, how could we possibly bear his image? We can't. And the failure to see the image of God in others has led to all kinds of, tr- of atrocities in our recent history. Look at the genocides of the 20th and 21st centuries to see that, many of which are in secular nations, but not all. And part of is- Israel's history is that they too were treated as subhuman. And part of our country's history is that we have treated others as subhuman as well. And this is because of bad biblical anthropology and sin. This is how chattel slavery and later Jim Crow laws thrived in the United States. And the church was complicit in this, no doubt. And we need to continue to learn about that history so as not to repeat it. And we also, as we learn about that history, need to look to Christians who were living in that time, like Frederick Douglass and William Wilberforce, who pointed to the Imago Dei. The Imago Dei, it's the same thing Dr. King pointed to over and over again in his work, the Imago Dei, that all bear the image of God. And because of that, image bearers of God are not meant to be ripped apart from their families, are not meant to be bought and sold, are not meant to be forced into labor and degraded. How could we do such a thing to image bearers of the divine? Um, Wilberforce, I've been reading about him recently, he was inspired to do his work by a Christian pastor named John Wesley. And Wesley wrote Wilberforce, when Wilberforce was a young politician in Britain, Wesley, this older pastor, is actually at the very end of his life, uh, one of the last things he did was he wrote a letter to William Wilberforce saying, well, I'll, I'll read it to you. He's urging him to fight slavery. And Wesley writes, go on, go on in the name of God and in the power of his might till even American slavery, the vilest that ever saw the sun, shall vanish away before it. Wesley's saying, listen, I'm about to die, but you've got to carry on this battle. You have to carry on this battle because all men and women bear the image of God. In a book that I'm reading right now, uh, it's from an older minister today named Ray Ortland, and it's written to the next generation, kind of he opens it with that letter from, um, from, from Wesley to Wilberforce. And Ortland um, is trying to model this book kind of in the same manner, saying like, listen, I'm, I'm nearing death, but there is a blight on humanity, a blight on the Imago Dei that we need to participate in fighting. 
The title of the book is The Death of Porn. And if you think that participation in pornography hurts no one, you are sorely mistaken. Your viewership feeds the demand for further human trafficking, for producers to prey on the vulnerabilities of the weak and the marginalized. The greater the the demand for pornography, the greater the incentive to produce it and to lure people into making it. And families, I, I bring this up too because you need to know that even if your kids aren't actively looking for pornography, pornography is actively looking for them. And putting protective software on your phones or on your um, TVs or computers, that's, that, those are, that's a good thing to do. It's, think of it like building a digital wall around your house to keep out the porn, pornography. But you need to know that it's also like parachuting in and tunneling in and being mailed into your home. And, and building a wall won't simply keep it out of, of your life or your children's lives. And so what that means is that we've got to talk about this with our kids. We can't leave it to them to figure out how to interact with it, what to do if it's put before them. Because the, the average age in our country is 11 years old for the first time someone sees it. And that, that age has been getting younger and younger as years go. So what we need to be doing is talking to our kids about it. Um, there are resources for this. There's a book um, called Good Pictures, Bad Pictures. It's a pretty good place to start if you're looking for somewhere. Good Pictures, Bad Pictures. But parents, what I'm, what I'm asking you to consider is that you would make yourself into the experts on this and like be able to talk to your kids about it. Um, because if you aren't, willing to talk to your kids about it, your kids are going to look elsewhere to find out about it. And it'll probably be Google or TikTok or their friends. Um, They need to talk to you about it. And what this means, the reason that we need to do this, y'all, is because what pornography is doing is it's teaching us to treat people as subhuman. It's teaching us and shaping us to view people as an object, as a means to our own gratification. And uh, Ortland, I'll read a bit from here, he's writing to men, but he actually acknowledges multiple times in the book that increasingly women struggle with this too. And as someone who was recently a campus minister at UT, I can definitely affirm that. But he writes here to men saying, pornography is Satan recruiting us to degrade a woman into the opposite of who she is, from royalty to slavery, into an object, into something subhuman. Pornography is Satan recruiting us to degrade a woman into the opposite of who she is, from royalty to slavery. You see, Satan hates God, and so of course he hates God's image bearers. Satan wants us to treat He wants us to treat one another as less than God's image. And so I'll say this too. If you're struggling with this, in a room this size, there's no doubt multiple people in this room struggling with this like today. If you're struggling with this, don't struggle with it alone. You're made in the image of an us. Let us make man in our image. You are made in the image of the triune God who is relational. And because of that, we're not made to to face life and to face its struggles by ourselves. 
So maybe if you are even sitting here and you just heard me encourage your parents to like talk to you about this and you're like, okay, I'm, I'm gonna talk, I'm gonna talk to my mom and dad about this. We also, parents, need to be in a position where we're, we're ready to receive all the yuck with grace. All the realness about who we really are with grace and love. Because these are image bearers. These are image bearers struggling. If you, if you, maybe you're sitting here thinking like, I actually don't even know how to fight against this. If you feel enslaved to it, I want to remind you, you bear the image of God and it does not own you. In Christ, in Christ you can find freedom so that it might not own you. And it really is in Christ that we have to find our hope because he confirms the value. Final point, confirming the value. When Laura Young found that marble bust, she had no idea like what it was worth. She had to go to the experts to find out. She had to go to the experts and they had to tell her how valuable this thing was, what it actually was. And if you really wanna see how valuable humans are, look at the expert. Look how Jesus treats the image bearers of God. Jesus treated others as God's image bearers like nobody else. Think about the woman caught in adultery. She's caught in, like, in the act of adultery. Who knows if she is even clothed or just has a bedsheet wrapped around her or something, but she's brought by her accusers to Jesus' feet and they kind of stand back to see what he does with, with her and he says, he who's without sin cast the first stone. And he kind of looks around at all of them and they all leave. And then there is still one person there with her though. It's Jesus with this woman who is sexually broken and ashamed. She's there before Jesus. You know what Jesus says? There's no one here to accuse you. Neither do I accuse you. See, Jesus, Jesus treats her like an image bearer of God because he knows that that's what she is. But it's not just with her. It's all throughout the gospels. There's all these times that people are trying to kind of like keep others away from Jesus. Or the disciples are guilty of this quite a bit too, kind of like shielding Jesus from others. And, and Jesus never does that. He's, he's never about that. He's not okay with that. Because he knows that these people who are trying to get at him and trying to get to him, that they bear the image of God. Think about the woman who's been bleeding for 12 years and she just touches, she reaches out and touches his robe to get a healing and she's healed. And Jesus, who's busy and he's on his way to like raise somebody from the dead, kind of a busy work, you know, he's got some important stuff to do. He stops, he stops on his way to this important person named Jairus' house. He stops on his way and he said, who touched me? And the disciples are like, there's like a ton of people around you. What do you mean who touched you? And I'm sure like when Jesus turned and looked at the, at, at the crowd who touched me, the woman probably wasn't like me. She like didn't say that immediately. He waited. No, who touched me? And this woman who has felt hopeless for 12 years, who every time she walked through the city had to shout out, unclean, unclean, unclean. She steps, she steps up before Jesus and it says she tells the whole truth about, him, about herself to him. And he just stands there and listens because she's an image bearer of God. 
See, Jesus treats people. He treats all kinds of people as image bearers of God. When, the, when there's children who want to come up and be with Jesus and the disciples are like, nope, what does Jesus say? Don't stop the kids from coming to me. Why? They bear the image of God. You see, time and time again, Jesus, he sees the image of God in the most broken. The prostitute who comes and she's weeping and washing his feet with her hair and that self-righteous Pharisee looks at her and he's like, man, if Jesus knew who she was, he wouldn't let her touch him. And Jesus kind of reads his mind. He says, Simon, I have something to say to you. He tells a parable. He tells a parable to Simon about how much we need grace and how those who need grace the most who have experienced the image of God defaced in themselves the most, how we actually appreciate God's grace the most. You see, because Jesus loves image bearers of God. He knows the value of image bearers because Jesus is, he's not an image bearer of God, he is the literal image of God. I think sometimes we separate in our minds, like there's God and then there's Jesus. That's, that's not biblical or orthodox. Jesus is God. If you want to know what God's like, look at Jesus. That's what God's like because Jesus is God. Hebrews says, Hebrews 1, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is God. He is the exact imprint of the nature of God. If you want to know what God's like, look at Jesus. Colossians 1, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. The image of God, and yet the image of God died. He became as ungodlike as we can imagine in order to rescue those who bear his image. And I want you to see that he stepped into all the ways that people have been dehumanized and treated as subhuman throughout the history of our world. That's what Jesus did. He was sold like a slave for 30 pieces of silver. He was unjustly arrested like a Jew living in the Third Reich. He was stripped of his clothes and trafficked to a hill called Calvary where people gawked at him. He was mocked for his race as he was lynched on a cross, on a tree, with a sign that said, Hail, King of the Jews. He was made an object of shame and scorn and derision. He was forsaken by God. Let us make man in our image. The one who has been in relationship for eternity was forsaken by God. That eternal relationship severed crying out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken by God, the exact imprint of his nature, forsaken by God so that image bearers, broken, sinful, rebellious image bearers could be redeemed and restored and rescued. And so my question to you is, have you believed in him for your salvation? He is where it is found, nowhere else. Have you believed in him? And that's an invitation to any of you who may be here and you have, you're, you're considering whether or not you want to believe. He is that good. Jesus is this good. But I wanna have like an in-house Christian conversation for a second too, okay? If you're not a Christian, listen in, all right? But this is a little family conversation to wrap things up. 
Y'all, if we believe that we've been rescued this way, that, that the Lord Jesus, who is the exact imprint of the nature of God became as ungodlike as possible, like Philippians 2 talks about, that he emptied himself to save us. How can we not move towards other image bearers in the same way? In fact, if we believe that, that we have been rescued this way, we will be compelled to do so and to participate in his work because the same spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead dwells inside of us. Have you noticed how much Jesus identifies with the marginalized and the broken and the poor. Listen to what he says in Matthew 25. The king, he's talking about the final day of judgment. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. This is the king speaking. I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. As you did it to one of my image bearers, you did it to me. Well, what would make us want to do that for one of his image bearers to see that he's done it for us, that he's clothed us, that he's saved us from the prison of our sin, that he has welcomed us when we were a stranger, that he has moved towards us. Friends, may the grace of God compel us to extend that same grace to our neighbors to love them as we have been loved by the Lord Jesus. Let's do that for his name's sake and for his glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have rescued us. And I, even just saying those words, like, I don't even, I, I fail to appreciate what that even means. The weight of that, Lord, would you impress it upon our hearts and may, uh, may your salvation, the joy of your salvation, compel us to love others as we've been loved by you. To, to affirm the image of God in others and to participate in your redemption. And we ask all this in Jesus' name, amen.